Um, the Bible reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 9. Um, Genesis chapter 9. God's covenant with Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth, and all of the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between you, me and you, and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The Sons of Noah The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. 
Well, good evening. My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, great to be able to continue this series tonight with you as we keep working through Genesis 1 to 12. Um, it's a big theme. Uh, we're doing a thematic series as we look through these chapters, and so we're looking at the theme of covenant tonight. So a lot of the little details of Genesis 9 we won't actually dig into as we sort of branch off into the rest of the Bible, actually, but we will start in Genesis 9. So just to let you know where we're heading, there's a bit of an outline on the back of the bulletin tonight, uh, so that may be helpful as we uh, consider this big theme through Scripture. So let me pray for us, and we'll have a look at this theme of covenant. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word to us, and we pray that as we uh, consider uh, this very important theme of your dealings with humanity tonight, that you might uh, give us further insight into your character and our response to your plans. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, consider further uh, the way that you work with people and your grace towards us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, back in August of 2003, there was a young Canadian guy, 17-year-old, named Mike Rowe. He'd started a, a part-time business uh, while he was finishing school, and it was to do web design. And he decided he'd make his own site, and he would call it microsoft.com. Well, it, you know, it's surprising, um, perhaps, that the humorless executives from Microsoft found out about Mike's site. Uh, the name he chose had a striking similarity to theirs. And uh, they weren't that impressed with him doing this, and they asked him to take it down because of trademark infringement. So Roe asked that um, he might uh, have some compensation for them saying this, and they offered him the kingly sum of $10. That was the cost that he'd had to get the domain name, apparently. Yeah, he wasn't that pleased with their response and the way they'd been dealing with him, and so he came back to them and said, I'll have $10,000. Uh, to which they replied with a 25-page cease and desist order announcing they were going to take him to court. And as the gears of the mighty uh, Microsoft war machine began rumbling towards court, uh, Micro did an unexpected thing. He went to the media and talked about his situation, um, created this publicity for his case. He garnered a lot of support. Uh, about $6,000 or more was given to him to help the potential legal costs, which were probably going to be far greater. And um, uh, he had free advice from a lawyer. And the media was having a field day with this David and Goliath-type situation. Can you imagine Microsoft? They're chasing after this 17-year-old guy. And, of course, it wasn't going so well for them in PR stakes. Eventually, uh, Microsoft realized that taking a teenager to court over a pun uh, probably wasn't worth the bad PR and so they decided we'll strike an agreement, we'll strike a deal with this micro out of court. And they did. Uh, what did he get? Well, to start off, they paid for the limited legal fees he'd had to that point. They paid for the cost of shifting his website to a better server to deal with the huge expansion in business he was getting. Now he had, I think he had 750,000 people in one week go to his site. Uh, massive traffic boost. Um, they also sent him a brand new Xbox. That was one of his requirements. And a whole list of games. Uh, they gave him and his parents an all-expenses-paid trip to the tech festival at Microsoft's Washington HQ. Uh, they also paid for him to do Microsoft certification course and a subscription to their developer forum. They basically set up the rest of his career for him in the space of a few days. 
And the remaining money that he had collected from all these people wanting to help him, he put towards his university education. And you might be wondering about that 25-page cease and desist order. Well, he put that on eBay and sold it for $1,000. This guy's smart, Mike Rowe, remember the name. Well, tonight we're focusing on the theme of covenant, and it's a big uh, biblical word, big theme that runs right through Scripture. And it's a term that we would often use today, except we'd say the word contract or agreement. Um, but even in the Bible, it had that sort of uh, formal legal weight to it, a covenant. We can understand perhaps um, a company even dealing with a teenager, but God striking a deal with a person or a people is clearly a bit different. And that brings us to the big question that we're going to consider tonight, and that is how can we be included in a covenant with God, in an agreement with God, and, and what are the benefits that might flow from that agreement? And that brings me to the first point on your outline, point one, a covenant with Noah. So coming to Genesis 9, Noah is the one bright light in the darkness of his day. Uh, the account of the flood marks the end, really, of the old humanity and the beginning of the new. And Noah is the righteous survivor from the old, and he will be the founder of the new era, as it were. And that's seen in the establishment of a covenant with him in chapter 9 by God. But God first announces his plan uh, to make an agreement with Noah in chapter 6. Notice chapter 6, verse 18 on the screen there. It states, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now this is the first mention in the Bible of this word covenant. As God's relationship with his people is most frequently discussed in these terms, it's really important to see in this initial use of the word here, uh, at least in this instance, it's a very one-sided pledge. There's a commitment from God to maintain this special relationship with Noah. And the chief result, notice, of this covenant will be the deliverance of Noah and his family. Yes, God's also going to preserve a selection of animals, and this is going to allow a fresh start for the world after God's judgment on sin through the flood. But after the flood and its account, which finishes in chapter 8, um, the covenant that God is going to make with Noah is spelt out in chapter 9 that was read for us. So notice again uh, verses 11 to 13 of chapter 9. Here's the heart of the agreement that God makes, the deal that he strikes with Noah. I establish my covenant with you, Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So in verse 12, um, gives Noah and his descendants... A lot of reassurance, doesn't it, after what has happened. Uh, never again is God going to judge in this manner with a, a flood that destroys everything. There's a promise here, isn't there, of permanent security for the people to come. But there's no suggestion in this that God won't hold people accountable for their actions, for their sins. It's not like God has just judged once and for all and he won't consider what happens from this point. But notice God confirms this um, covenant with Noah with this great sign, the sign of a rainbow. 
Now, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, the sign is something that we see as people, but it's actually a sign that's a reminder to God that he will remember his promise to all humanity, to the earth at the time of Noah. And I think what we see here is God's grace amidst the judgment that's just fallen. This great judgment that's happened through the flood on the earth, and yet here is God's grace shown to humanity, particularly this man Noah with whom he makes an agreement. That brings me to a second point. That's the first time the word covenant's used in the Bible, but it becomes a huge theme as uh, the chapters roll on. So secondly, let's consider some of the other covenants in the Bible or the covenant variations. We're going to consider three uh, principally after this, um, the first of which is with Abraham. So the covenant with Abraham, or as somebody uh, sometimes is said in shorthand, at the Abrahamic covenant. So notice Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. What's the next great promise or agreement that God makes? The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, and I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Well, verse 1 here, Genesis 12, Abraham's called to move south. Um, he was originally in Ur of the Chaldeans, so which is about southern Iraq today. He'd moved up to southern Turkey, which is where he was in Haran. He's now told to leave there, head south down to Canaan, the promised land around the area of Israel as we know it today. But the call to leave everything here comes with great encouragement. He's made these amazing, wonderful promises in verses 2 and 3. And notice how those uh, promises... Although there's several, there's six or seven key phrases and all that, they really can be summarized into three things. Um, land, offspring, blessing. They're going to have this promised land. There'll be many descendants from this man, and they will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And Abraham himself will be blessed. And so um, these are the great promises that God makes to this man as he starts afresh following the flood. Um, really what we see post the flood is, as we read before, Noah's own failure. So even though he was the righteous man of his generation, his drunken episode shows that nothing has really changed post the flood. Sin is still going to be there. And then, we, of course, we have the Tower of Babel. And God makes a fresh start with Abram. says, well, I'm going to pour my blessing out through one man and his family, his descendants. And so these wonderful promises are made to him. Now, in Genesis 12, they're largely unconditional still like Noah's promise he's just got to leave Haran and follow that that perhaps is a big step in itself um, but as the covenant gets formalized in chapters 15 and then 17 of Genesis God gives a little bit more detail to Abraham um, there is a conditional element that's really clearly uh, instated so have a look at Genesis 17 verses 10 and 14 with me here's what God says to Abraham a little later this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there was something that had to be done or the people would step outside of the agreement. And similarly, when you get to Moses or the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God made with his people Israel at Mount Sinai, which comes 
uh, from Exodus 19 to 24. Uh, again, there's a, a very, even stronger conditional element to this new agreement or expanded agreement that God makes with the people. Uh, in Exodus 20, involves them, of course, hearing the Ten Commandments, and they're going to have to obey these commands. I will be their God and they will be my people, but they must live this way. And so there's a whole lot of requirements upon God's people. And we can begin to think, whoa, uh, have we moved a lot away from grace this point? You know, it was very just one-sided with Noah. But grace is not absent, even as we come to the Sinai covenant, uh, as the introduction to Exodus 20 shows. So verses 1 and 2, notice before any instruction in how to live is given, God says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's crucial to see this because it reminds us that the nation of Israel already had a relationship with God. He had saved them from Egypt. He'd brought them out of slavery. So in response to his love, to his rescue, to his relationship that's already with them, he now gives them instruction about how they will operate within that covenant relationship with him. So notice that the law is not given so that they might obey and earn God's love, but it's in response to God's love that they're to live this way. They have been saved and now they're instructed how to live in relationship with him. But of course, there's still a conditional nature to this covenant. They're required to uphold their side of the deal. They need to respond in obedience to God's commands. And as soon as we see a conditional element in a covenant, we think, well, there's opportunity for this to go wrong, as it so often does for people today as they make deals. One classic example, one of the most famous, um, started back in 1975. Uh, there was a French lawyer um, named uh, André-Francois Raffray, and he had this great idea. He knew this 90-year-old woman, Jean Calment, who lived just down the road from him and owned a really nice apartment. And so he went up to her and offered her a deal. He said, look, I'll pay you 2,500 francs a month if whenever you die, the apartment is given to me. She had no um, descendants at that point. And, but, you know, if that were to happen next week, then it would still whatever amount of money has been paid, I'll receive it at that point. She agreed. He thought it was great. He started the payments and the payments went on and on. Unfortunately for Raphael, things decidedly did not go according to his plan. Uh, Mrs. Calment lived to be the oldest verifiable human on earth. <laughs> the months turned into years. The years turned into decades. All this would have only made the moment he finally got the apartment all the sweeter, wouldn't it? Except that she outlived him. After 30 years, he died at the age of 77, but she was still alive at 120. She died two years later at 122, but not before his wife had to continue the payments because the agreement was until she died. She eventually was paid around $200,000 in our terms today, twice the value of the apartment. Conditional covenants. Well, there's a further covenant in Scripture that's really important, and that's King David's one in 2 Samuel 7, often called the Davidic Covenant, uh, where God establishes an agreement with his chosen king, and he promises him an eternal kingdom. The irony is that David's planning to build God a house 
to build the temple. But God says, no, you're not going to build the temple. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a line that will rule forever. And so in verses 13 to 16 of 2 Samuel 7, we get this amazing uh, promises made to King David. Have a look at verse 13 to 16 with me. God speaking to David says, He is the one, speaking of Solomon, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." So these wonderful promises, again, um, later get referred to as a covenant, just as the promises first made to Abraham then became referred to as a covenant. Uh, David's going to found a dynasty here. Uh, But notice there is a conditional element to it, especially as he speaks about Solomon and those that would follow, that they needed to continue in relationship with God or they would be punished, things would go wrong, but he would never take away this promise to the line of David. Well, David did... uh, found a great dynasty but it would end in 400 years time Uh, the babylonians eventually came and smashed jerusalem and took away the people that were left into exile the physical line of david as such ended in terms of them being kings and that the end of that physical line was not really a failure of the promise though and the prophets um, of the exile period and beyond Um, look to the expectation that there would be a son of David who would come. There would be an eternal kingdom still. There was still a line of David, and this son of David would eventually come and reestablish his throne with righteousness. And there would be a branch from the stump of Jesse who would create the ideal eternal kingdom. In other words, these promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 gave the expectation of a Messiah, There would be a son of David who would come, who would have a great kingdom, who would usher in a new day. And that brings us to our third and final point. Where does that lead to? Well, of course, that leads us to the new covenant, point three. Now, firstly, we need to consider the prediction and fulfillment of this covenant, and then we'll think about the benefits. And we'll do this by going to Hebrews chapter 8 in the New Testament. So Hebrews 8, uh, verses 7 to 9. Uh, The writer says, If there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, so notice all those made, uh, Abraham, Sinai, David, are all of one in one sense. It's a promise to God's old covenant people, Israel. If there'd been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So notice firstly here, uh, verses 8 to 12 in this section of Hebrews 8 is actually a long quote from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is the key passage in the Old Testament predicting the new covenant to come. There are some other passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, key passage. And it's um, you know, quoted here and then expanded upon. 
And the writer speaks about this new covenant being superior. It's so much better than what existed. And he comes to this primary passage from the Old Testament. But notice in verse 7 that you only need a new covenant when the old one has failed. And so the problem at the start of verse 8 is that God finds fault with the people. They did not meet their side of the deal. And so he turned away from them. They failed to meet their conditions. Notice in verse 9, God says, They did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them. Now, although the covenant with Israel essentially started with the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, obviously the specific focus in this quote is on the covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai. You see, after the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, a whole bunch of other laws were given in Exodus 21 to 23. And when those had all finished, that was called the Book of the Covenant. That was what they were agreeing to do if they were going to be God's people. And in Exodus 24, immediately following that, God said, okay, there's the law. That's how you live in relationship with me. Are you going to do this? And the people formally said, yes, we're going to obey all of these laws. Exodus 24, verses 6 to 8. The formal agreement is made. They promise to do everything. And so I guess the question is, well, how were they unfaithful to the law then? God says in Hebrews 8, they didn't do it. I guess the question is really, where were they faithful in all the agreement that was laid down? Uh, when Moses returned, remember, from the mountain the first time with the Ten, ten Commandments, he, he smashes them. Why? Because... Well, he finds his own brother, Aaron, who's supposed to be leading the people in his absence, building a golden calf for the people to worship. I mean, the, the ink hasn't dried and they've broken the covenant in a huge way. And so starts this terrible cycle of failure. The people sin. God sends them a leader to bring them back to the covenant. The people say, yes, we're going to do it again, recommit themselves to do everything in the law. And then it all starts again and round and round we go. And so a new covenant is finally foreshadowed as you get to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. It's going to end this frustrating cycle whereby the Israelites just can't keep their part of the covenant. And under this new and better agreement, things will be different. How so? Well, have a look. Verses 10 to 12 of Hebrews 8. How will it be any different? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or his man, his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. See, this new relationship would involve three things here in Hebrews 8. Uh, the implanting of God's word in their hearts the knowledge of God as a matter of personal experience and the blotting out of their sins once and for all. And so at the end of this section in Hebrews 8, verse 13, excuse me, the writer says, this new covenant therefore is so much better. This makes the old covenant obsolete. The new supersedes, it does away with the old. Who would want to go back to the old if this is what we're now offered? Here is the fresh way forward. I don't know if you know much about the history of Northern Ireland in recent decades, but uh, more than 3,500 people uh, were killed in Northern Ireland during the three decades known as the Troubles. 
Uh, they pitted communities supporting and opposing British rule of the province against each other. And it turned into quite a bloody campaign of bombings and shootings. I'm sure some of you at least know the U2 song, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, so named because of all the blood that was shed in this campaign, particularly on one day, a civil rights march on a Sunday, um, remains one of the most significant events in the Troubles, chiefly because it was carried out in full view of the media and the press and out in public. Um, it was on the 30th of January, 1972, in the Bogside area of Derry, people marching in a civil rights protesters, bystanders who were shot by soldiers of the British Army. 26 unarmed people shot. 13 males, seven of whom were teenagers, die immediately. And of course that only exacerbated uh, the debate and the fighting. And this went on for year after year after year. But finally in 1993 there was uh, a declaration that was made. There was a substantial step towards peace. It was called the Downing Street Declaration where uh, the British government accepted the right of this area in Northern Ireland to self-determination. They committed themselves to facilitating some serious peace agreement to come and they even admitted Sinn Féin, the, the political wing of the IRA, into the discussions. It's a massive step. But were the people of Northern Ireland convinced? Well, not entirely. Uh, there was a lot of distrust still. There were still shootings and things that went on and bombings in London and in Northern Ireland. They were waiting for the final agreement to happen. And it finally came in 1998. The agreement. A peace deal. And both Britain and Ireland helped broker it. And the new agreement largely ended all fighting. It was a new power-sharing arrangement agreement was so much better than the declaration that had been made just a few years before. And if you asked anyone in Northern Ireland after 1998, do you want to go back to what had been the agreement in 93 or before that? Well, no one wanted to go back. It had enough of that. When 1998 came, nobody wanted to go back to the old agreement. And it's the same with the New Covenant. Why would anyone want to go back be under law and need to respond and fail to respond because of our sin. It does beg the question, doesn't it? Um, how is it that we can be included today in a covenant with God? And what are the benefits? How does this work? Well, firstly, with regard to our inclusion in the covenant, it's by faith alone. This new covenant brings Gentiles in. We're grafted in, as Romans 9 to 11 would say. And it's simply on trust in God's Son and his finished work, his death and his resurrection. You know, the new covenant is established with the sacrifice of Christ who pays for sin once and for all. Jesus is the mediator between a holy God and sinful people. And so only faith can do it. We'd proven for centuries before that that we can't bring anything to the table. If it depended even one iota on us, then it was going to be a dud deal. Now, we don't enter the new covenant through any other means. We can't even get a reserved seating ticket beforehand. You know, we don't enter the new covenant through baptism, as some Protestant traditions have held. 
you know, be baptized as an infant, and then later you confirm that entry by faith. We would argue that the New Testament says the point of entry into the covenant with God is that moment of personal trust as a person acknowledges their sin, repents, and believes in Jesus' death and resurrection was for them. That's key. Baptism is not the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament circumcision. See, the Old Covenant was different. Every single male who was born in Israel was circumcised, and any servant who didn't even belong to the Jewish people could be because they were living with them. That was just everyone. But baptism is only for those who are Abraham's children by faith. By faith. As John Piper puts it, the church is not to be like Israel, a physical multitude, and within it there's a small remnant of true saints. No, the church are the saints by definition. The church continues the remnant. It's really important to see. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul explicitly defines baptism as an act done through faith. Having been buried with him in baptism, Paul writes, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. So notice here that baptism is a response of faith, your own faith, not your parents' faith or anyone else's. Baptism is simply an outward sign of something that must have already taken place inwardly by faith. So there's the entry point into the covenant, the moment a person trusts in Jesus. But secondly, what about the benefits of this new covenant? What is received by entering it? Well, there are just many things that the New Testament wants to speak about. But let's just focus in on those that have already been noted in Hebrews 8. They will do as a starting point. The blotting out of sins, the knowledge of God as a personal experience, not a distant one, the implanting of God's law in our hearts. You know, firstly, the blotting out of sins, it's essential to this new relationship. The assurance of forgiveness of sins is written into the very terms of it. Notice that this new covenant is completely unconditional. It's dependent on God. It's not dependent on your performance. So important. Law has now been replaced by grace. This is very much a one-handed handshake, a one-sided agreement which depends only on God. Secondly, the substance of this new covenant is the same, though, I will be their God and they will be my people. But the difference is now that there's actually a personal experience of the believer. The old covenant member of Israel went at a distance to God, could only go to the temple, offer something to a priest who might intercede with them before God. But now a personal relationship, direct access to the Father, ourselves. Very different and wonderful due to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. God with us every moment. And thirdly, um, God's law in our hearts means receiving a new heart, which is promised by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now, God's people in the past really longed to obey his word, as you might today, but they didn't have the power to do it. They weren't enabled to match their intentions. And this is the main role of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. It keeps pointing us back to Jesus by helping us to understand and live out God's word. 
to help us live what we say we believe. What we need is a heart freed from the power of sin, a heart which would not only know God, but could respond to God. And that's what we're offered. We're regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, made God's, and then he continues to effect change in us as he sanctifies us or makes us more like Jesus, moment by moment, day by day. He helps us to put off the old sinful ways and to put on the new ways, the new fruit of the Holy Spirit. I want to dwell on this final point for a moment as we finish because I think it's key to our thinking about how we go forward as Christians. I used to work for an engineering firm and my boss owned a Belgian shepherd and this uh, shepherd lived under my desk most of the time, which made it hard to work, but he was a lovely dog. He was well-trained. He could do all kinds of things on cue. He'd been to obedience school. He was amazing, if he wanted to be. Um, in fact, when they took him for a walk, he could be a model citizen, or he could just sort of take them for a walk. He was so powerful, he just dragged them down the street, fighting to go his own way at his own pace. And, of course, if they made the mistake of letting him off the lead... Well, then he could disappear. They'd spend the next hour or two trying to find him. You know, they were reduced to barking orders and shouting. Well, he could return if he wanted to, but he had no intention most of the time. He just went off and did his own thing. I'll go and have fun for an hour and then I'll be back. Without the lead, they were reduced to rules and commands, but they had no power if he had no desire to follow his master's voice. So it's the same with us. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit if we're going to live for God, if we're going to be useful members of this new covenant, if we're going to real, see real change in following our master Jesus. How will we hear his voice through his word if we're not enabled to follow him through the work of his spirit? And if we ignore the spirit's leading, there won't matter how many rules or laws that we're trying to keep or others bark at us, we'll just find a way to ignore them or to get around them. That's what humanity has been doing since day dot. Commands haven't got the power to overcome your sinful nature and cause you to change. They never had, they never will. The only thing that can change you is God himself through his spirit and your willingness to let him have his way in your life. A person can't be saved by obeying rules or laws and once you're a Christian, you don't stay in by trying hard to obey a rule or a law because you can't. Rather, what we need is to be led by God to grow in his grace, which has saved us, to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5, to line up behind the Spirit and his ways, who writes God's laws on our heart. I hope you see how better the new covenant is. You know what I think the great shame is? Many Christians want to go back, as it were, and live under the old covenant. They know God's grace in Christ, but they're trying to do it in their strength as they follow the rules and try in their best ability to obey God in their strength rather than allowing God to change them. Ask him to show them where they need to grow and to live for him. Don't go back. Don't place yourself under the law. Live by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of your covenant keeping with your people. 
you are faithful but we struggle with faithfulness your people have always struggled but we thank you that under the new covenant we're granted your holy spirit that we might be able to respond as we desire to so work in us we pray even this day this week that we might live for you we ask this in christ's name amen we're going to sing